Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, including yours. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com for some of our favorites. Up next, a story from our regular contributor, Anne Clare. Anne is a choir director, teacher, organist, and a great writer on all things World War II history. Today, she shares with us the story of two ships sunk at the attack on Pearl Harbor. Take it away, Anne. The island of Oahu in the state of Hawaii has a huge place in American history, particularly in the history of America's involvement in World War II. The Japanese attacks on December 7, 1941, which launched the U.S. into the war, took place on that island. These attacks did a great deal of damage and caused a great loss of life, as well as the complete losses of three ships, the USS Arizona, the USS Utah, and the USS Oklahoma. 
The Arizona Memorial is open to the general public as part of the World War II Valor in the Pacific National Monument, and it's an excellent place to visit and to remember those who were lost. Unlike the Arizona Memorial, the Utah and the Oklahoma Memorials are actually found on Ford Island, which is still used by the military as part of Joint Base Pearl Harbor-Hickam. So to see these memorials, one needs special permission, or, if you're fortunate enough as we were, military friends stationed in the area who will act as escort. The resting place of the Utah is a rather lonely and unassuming place. When we visited, our party had the little parking area to ourselves. By 1941, the Utah was already past her prime. Launched in 1909, she served in World War I. She was demilitarized in 1931 and repurposed as a target ship for training. The Utah was on the opposite side of Ford Island from the Arizona and other prime targets for Japanese planes. Just why she ended up having six torpedoes fired on her is an open question. Perhaps it was a case of mistaken identity. But whatever the reason, 64 of the training ship's officers and crew were lost. It might have been more if Lieutenant Commander Solomon Isquith hadn't organized a rescue crew when he and others who'd escaped heard the frantic knocking on the hull of survivors trapped inside. Braving Japanese planes still strafing the harbor, they returned to their sunken ship to cut the hull open and save those they could. The Utah was never salvaged. It still rests in Pearl Harbor as part of its own memorial, entombing those who went down with her. The original memorial for the Utah was a plaque mounted on the wrecked remains. A new memorial was built in 1972. The simple white structure offers a close view of the ship's remains. Below the raised American flag, a plaque commemorates those who were lost. Like the Arizona survivors, survivors of the Utah have the option of having their ashes returned to the ship upon their passing to join those who never left. The memorial for the USS Oklahoma is also found on Ford Island. Unlike the Utah, the USS Oklahoma was still a fully active battleship. On the morning of December 7, 1941, she was tied up just down Battleship Row from the Arizona. Struck by at least nine torpedoes, it took only 13 minutes for the Oklahoma to capsize. Sailors tried to evacuate over the starboard side, but as she rolled over, hundreds were trapped inside. There are many stories of bravery from the Oklahoma's tragedy. Honors given to her crew include two posthumous medals of honor and one Navy cross. One award particularly caught my eye as it was given just a couple of years ago. It was given to Father Aloysius H. Schmidt. He had just finished morning mass and was reportedly hearing confession on board the USS Oklahoma when the first torpedoes hit. He assisted 12 sailors to escape through a porthole. When he attempted his own escape, he became stuck. Hearing other sailors in the compartment behind him, he insisted on being pushed back into the doomed vessel so that others could escape. His remains were identified recently, and his family was awarded his posthumous silver star in 2017. Those who escaped the Oklahoma worked frantically for days to cut through the ship's hull to rescue trapped survivors. But in spite of their best efforts, they were only able to rescue 32. All told, the Oklahoma suffered 429 losses, 
the second highest loss of life after the Arizona. In memory of those lives lost, 429 white marble pillars stand at the Oklahoma Memorial. A black stone marker at the memorial sums up the meaning of the place best. A portion of it reads, Manning the Rails. As Navy vessels pass through Pearl Harbor, sailors and Marines stand at attention along the ship's railing and superstructure. The crew's dress uniforms contrast sharply against the gray vessels. In full dress uniform, the ship's crew stands at attention in a display of respect and honor, coming home for a final time by manning the rails. Those white marble pillars are meant to represent those missing crew members who will no longer be able to man their ship's rails. The USS Oklahoma herself no longer rests in Pearl Harbor. The Navy attempted to salvage her, patching and refloating her, However, the damage was too great. The Oklahoma was decommissioned in 1944. She was sold for scrap. However, en route to the west coast, she broke her toe and sank the 17th of May, 1947. I'm grateful that I've had the opportunity to pay my respects at these memorials. If you ever have that opportunity, I definitely recommend a visit as well, as we remember lives lost and sacrifices given as people fought and struggled to preserve the freedoms that we cherish. And a beautiful job on the production by Monty, and a special thanks to Ann Claire for sharing the stories of the USS Utah and Oklahoma here on Our American Story. Folks, if you love the stories we tell about this great country, and especially the stories of America's rich past, know that all of our stories about American history, from war to innovation, culture, and faith, are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, a place where students study all the things that are beautiful in life and all the things that are good in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu to learn more. And we return to Our American Stories, and up next, a story from British historian Andrew Roberts, who's written the book Churchill Walking with Destiny, and also for this feature story, The Last King of America, The Misunderstood Reign of King George III. Today, Andrew shares with us that story and the misconceptions about the last English ruler of this country. Take it away, Andrew. The thing that Americans assume about King George III was that he was a tyrant. And uh, we know that because he was uh, mentioned as being unfit to be the ruler of a free people in the Declaration of Independence. The Common Sense pamphlet that was written by uh, Tom Paine describes him as the royal brute of Britain. And, uh, of course, we also know that he was an absurd sort of camp but sinister and sadistic figure from Lin-Manuel Miranda's hit musical Hamilton, the uh, American musical. These are no, this is, none of this is right. None of this is true. He was not a tyrant. 
He was in fact a constitutional monarch. He believed in limited government, uh, limited monarchy, never believed in the divine right of kings and so on, and never vetoed an act of parliament in his life. George III was um, born in June 1738, the son of the Prince of Wales, Prince Frederick, and his mother, Princess Augusta. It was a very rural society. About 80% of people took their livings from agriculture. It was a very hierarchic society with a small aristocracy at the top and an awful lot of working people at the bottom of society. It was a old-fashioned, in a sense, society because this was um, before the Industrial Revolution and it was a, uh, a country at war for much of its time for the next hundred years, primarily with France. George III had a very wide education for the day. He had tutors who taught him uh, much more widely and indeed deeply than the schoolboys of the day, even at the best public schools in Britain. One of the things that he was required to do by his tutor, the Earl of Bute, was to write essays about historical and constitutional issues and it was a very wide-ranging education and we can tell from these essays that he had a true belief in limited constitutional monarchy. He was totally opposed to the slave trade and to slavery. It was very remarkable that in the 1750s, when um, no country in the world had outlawed slavery, and uh, which an awful lot of them were practicing slavery right the way across the globe, that the Prince of Wales should be writing essays really holding the concept of slavery in execration, as he put it. He said that it was the arguments for it was absurd. And this had a major effect on him later on because he didn't buy or sell a slave in his life. He never invested in the companies that did that. And ultimately, he signed the legislation that abolished the slave trade. George III was a good-natured, charming, intelligent person. He was very much in love with his wife, which was extremely unusual in the Hanoverian family, which was otherwise an extremely dysfunctional um, group of kings. Um, and George III was a believing, pious, practicing Anglican. He did believe that the Christian faith was something that needed to permeate every aspect of his life, and it did. And he felt that he had a close connection to, uh, to the Almighty. He much preferred talking to bishops than talking to uh, politicians. Um, he uh, went to church every Sunday and enjoyed it. The Seven Years' War, which started actually here in America before the official outbreak in 1756, continued until 1763 and was fought by Britain and Prussia and the American uh, colonies on one side versus pretty much the whole of the rest of Europe, Russia, Austria, France primarily. So it was a world war. It's sometimes called by historians the First World War because it um, continued on uh, several continents right the way through to the uh, East Indies and it was um, a tremendous victory for the British-led coalition to the point that in the Treaty of Paris in 1763 the French were flung off the North American continent altogether.
the war was tremendously expensive. It uh, doubled the national debt in Britain. George III, he had a very um, conservative with a small c view of the national debt. He thought it was the moral duty of the government to try to pay it down as much as he uh, uh, could. And so in an attempt two years after the war to try to get the uh, Americans to help defray the expenses of it, or at least defray the expenses of troops that were stationed in North America, because every um, penny of the Stamp Act was going to be spent in North America, they tried to um, bring in this, uh, this act of uh, Parliament which would raise taxes on printed paper. The Stamp Act was intended to only to raise a very small amount of money, between 40 and 50,000 pounds, which worked out as between the 2.5 million Americans as only about two shillings and sixpence per American per year. But it wasn't really the uh, level of the Stamp Act so much as the principle of it, because for the last hundred years or so, the British had not imposed internal duties. There had been uh, trading dues, uh, of course, and they had been around since the time of Oliver Cromwell. But this was a departure and one that the Americans were not going to put up with. It was also quite unfortunate that the people who were most hit, most heavily hit by the Stamp Act, namely uh, solicitors, lawyers, journalists, were also, um, and always have been, and indeed are today, the most vocal people in society. America deserved independence by the 1760s and early 1770s. It was a country of 2.5 million people. It had 7% year-on-year growth, a really burgeoning economy. It had more bookshops in Philadelphia than in any other city of the empire except for London. It also had no external French threat. So the nearest French army was a thousand miles away in Haiti. So. It was the right time for America to become self-governing. And at the same time, the British government passed a proclamation saying that the 13 colonies could not expand over the Allegheny Mountains um, westwards. And so it essentially preserved the whole of the American continent west of the Alleghenies as one gigantic Native American reservation, essentially. And this was something that a lot of the founding fathers who had shares in uh, speculative land deals, um, especially in the Ohio um, River Valley, were not going to uh, put up with. So these things all coming together, created by the mid to late 1760s, an intellectual movement in America that understood that the best thing for the country was to become a country and a self-governing one. The truly important factor in the creation of the American Revolution was not issues over taxation and representation. Frankly, both the South Carolinian and the Virginian delegates to the Stamp Act Congress were told not to accept representation if it were offered. But it was about sovereignty. It was about who ultimately was in control of the laws that were passed in America. And when American uh, local legislatures could be vetoed by the London Parliament, that was something that went to the heart of whether or not America was going to become a sovereign nation. And you're listening to Andrew Roberts tell a story. Heck, I know a lot about history, and it was revealing to me. 
And by the way, we're still having the same arguments about sovereignty, about who decides and who pays, even here in this country with a distant power, at least as many people see it, called Washington, D.C. When we come back, more of this remarkable storytelling. Andrew Roberts telling the story of the last king of America, King George III, here on Our American Stories. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors in our lives, big ones and small ones. If we keep them bottled up, boy, that can be a real problem. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest, to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. I know people who've profoundly benefited from therapy, learning everything from coping skills to setting boundaries in their life. You don't have to have experienced major trauma to benefit from therapy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's safe. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash OAS today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash OAS. Betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash OAS. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is uncanny usa he says somebody's in the house and i screamed listen to uncanny usa wherever you get your bbc podcasts if you dare hey guys it is ryan i'm not sure if you know this about me but i'm a bit of a fun fanatic when i can i like to work but i like fun too it's a thing and now the truth is out there i can tell you about my favorite place to have fun Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave it Adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.
And we're back with our American stories and our story on the last king of America, King George III. And by the way, pick up this book on Amazon. You won't put it down. It's terrific writing and a real suspense yarn in some ways. When we last left off, Andrew Roberts was telling us about what kind of man King George was. He hated slavery. He was a constitutional monarch. And unlike popular perception, he wasn't a tyrant. But in order for us to gain our independence, he had to be painted as one. Let's continue with the story. Although the American founding fathers quite rightly wanted to clothe themselves in the mantle of the great revolutions of 1642 against Charles I and 1688 against James II, that required trying to uh, straightjacket George III into being a Stuart absolutist monarch, which he absolutely was not. And so instead they needed to try to turn him into a, a tyrant, which he also was not. We know what tyrants did in the late 18th century. One only had to look at Russia or Austria or Prussia, what the Spanish were doing in New Orleans, what the French were doing in Corsica, to see what despotism looked like in the 18th century. And George III was doing none of that. He never arrested an American editor, closed an American newspaper, he didn't station um, armies in the American cities except for Boston after 1768. He was um, not a tyrant in the 18th century meaning of the phrase, which was cruel or despotic. The Boston Tea Party was an attempt in December 1773 to keep the price of tea high for those Bostonian merchants, many of whom were also smugglers, to uh, profit from. And uh, the British government wanted to allow the dumping, essentially, of huge amounts of tea from the East India Company, which was going bankrupt at the time. This would have been very good for American consumers of tea because they would pay much less for their tea. But this wasn't good at all for the Bostonian merchants, who had their men attack the ships that were bringing the tea into the harbour and threw 9,000 pounds in weight of tea, so tons and tons of tea into the harbour. So this encouraged the Lord North government in, back in London to pass various tough acts called the Intolerable Acts in, uh, in America, the Coercive Acts in uh, Britain, against the port of, uh, of Boston and the province of Massachusetts Bay. And the king was told that by the royal governors that the other provinces would not stand by Massachusetts. And it was one of many, many appallingly bad pieces of advice that he got from his men on the ground. It was always disastrous when the royal governors and other important peoples, just like General Sir Thomas Gage, uh, the commander-in-chief of the British Army in uh, America, told the king that the Americans would react meekly to the coercive acts. He couldn't have got it more wrong. In fact, they reacted with fury and also in a unified way. Once the Declaration of Independence was published, famously on the 4th of July, 1776, the reaction across the 13 colonies was immediate. And on the 9th of July, the King's statue in the Bowling Green in southern 
the Manhattan was pulled down, melted down to create 44,000 lead bullets for the Continental Army. And right the way across the colonies, his uh, royal insignia was taken down and burnt. He was burnt in effigy. The names of various colleges and streets and even um, cities was changed to get rid of British monarchical nomenclature. So it was a really very powerful and immediate response. The British people split on a number of different lines, on religious lines, the Anglicans being more in favour of the war, the dissenters against it, on class lines, it tended to be a much more middle class thing to be in favour of the war, the working classes didn't much like the idea, and also actually, interestingly, regional lines. Some counties supported it, other counties didn't. In America, some one-third of the population were loyalists. They didn't want the war to break out at all. Quite a lot of them actually raised arms against the Patriot cause and the Continental Army. So it was an element of civil war as well, which explains the atrocities. In all civil wars, you get much worse atrocities than in normal state-on-state -state wars. In order to try to subdue the 13 colonies, the British had to send an army which never exceeded 50,000 men and for most of the war was between 30 and 35,000 men, which was nothing and like enough for an enormous country of 1,800 miles from top to toe. It was a um, force that had to be given one-third of a tonne of supplies per man and so that also was a tremendously difficult logistical problem to get that across the Atlantic, 3,000 miles of the Atlantic with the Royal Navy, especially when later on in the war these ships were being attacked. And it's always very dangerous to fight against people who actually use their marksmanship to put food in their children's mouths. And that was true of an awful lot of Americans. The actual marksmanship was something that the British Army was not prepared for. They were the American uh, militiamen, minutemen and uh, later Continental Army soldiers were an awful lot better than uh, the British were expecting them to be. The British had a strategic plan, really the only workable strategic plan of the war from the British side, which was to send Sir William Howe up the Hudson Valley from New York with one force, at the same time as Sir John Burgoyne came down from Canada to Albany with another, and they were going to meet and thereby secure the Hudson Valley and cut off the New England colonies from the rest of the 13 colonies and that if it had come off might have won the war but Sir William Howe veered off eastwards and captured Philadelphia and that led to Sir John Burgoyne being captured at Saratoga in October 1777. At the time of the surrender of Burgoyne at Saratoga the public opinion which hitherto hadn't really mattered very much in, in British politics, suddenly became an extremely important aspect and it turned against the war. The radical Whigs in Parliament openly sided with the Americans. They wore blue and buff clothes, uh, which was the uh, colour of the Continental Army officers and was a uh, highly difficult 
moment for the whole of the uh, of the British political setup. The, the government essentially was in very great danger of falling. And you're listening to Andrew Roberts tell a heck of a story, and it's true, it was our first civil war. More from Andrew Roberts, the book, The Last King of America. Go to Amazon or the usual suspects and buy it after these messages. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise.
And we continue with Our American Stories in our final segment on the story of the last King of America, King George III. When we last left off, Britain was in crisis as public perception on the war began to turn, and things were about to get worse for Britain. Here again is Andrew Roberts with the rest of the story. What happened then was that the French got involved in the war in, uh, in February 1778. The French are always there when they need you. And in 1780, the Spaniards declared war, and in 1780, also the Dutch. So the British were suddenly fighting a world war against these three major European powers, which turned the whole of the American War of Independence into a colonial backwater whilst we fought for our very existence. There was one point in 1779 when a Franco-Spanish fleet with 30,000 men was about to land in, in Britain and invade Britain. So. Instead of having 50,000 men in America, we had to drop that down to 35,000 and just stay in the eastern seaboard cities that we'd already held by that stage. We were to capture Charleston in 1780, which in many ways was the greatest British victory of the war, but it didn't change the overall balance of forces because the war was being fought in Gibraltar and in the East Indies and the West Indies, Africa and so on. There were any number of reasons why the American War of Independence was lost by the British. Some military historians, including me in fact, think that it couldn't have ever been won after the escape of George Washington from Manhattan. If the Battle of Bunker Hill hadn't been such an extremely expensive Pyrrhic victory for the British, if Valley Forge had gone differently and there were more desertions and the sublime, charismatic leadership of George Washington had either not been there or not been so impressive, then uh, there was a chance of that rebellion being smothered in its cradle. However, by the time that um, he had got through the Valley Forge months, it was pretty much, and especially when the French turned the whole thing into a world war, you know, it's so much more difficult to fight on more than one front. There were also lots of other problems in that the British War Office hated the Admiralty and vice versa. Lots of the generals all hated each other. The generals often hated the admirals and vice versa. I mean, the, the, it was quite extraordinary the amount of internal bickering that went on, especially, of course, when it looked like it was going to be a, a losing war. Once the British were fighting a war not just on two fronts but on five or six fronts, the torrent was just too strong and George III took a long time to recognise that actually we were going to lose the 13 colonies, that they were going to become independent and that the sooner the war ended the more likely it was that we weren't going to lose any more colonies. As it was we did lose some but it was a question of drawing a line before the situation got even worse. 
The defeat was the most catastrophic strategic reverse for Britain between the loss of the Angevin lands in the 15th century and the fall of France in 1940. It was deeply humiliating for the king, it brought down the Lord North government, it was expensive both in blood and treasure. And of course the loyalists, over 80,000 of them, had to flee the United States and they got out with their lives, many of them, and escaped to Canada from where they helped build the second British Empire in India and Africa and elsewhere. It was also very fortunate that the slaves who had escaped from their um, masters, including those actually who belonged to George Washington, a couple of them, were also allowed off in the British ships from New York to Canada and so were not forced to uh, return to their servitude. But actually when one looks at the Germain plan, at the low level of recruitment, at the hatreds, mutual jealousies and bickering between the departments and so on, and indeed the just sheer width of the Atlantic, none of these were George III's fault. He can indeed slightly be faulted over the low recruitment actually because of some decisions that he supported. But this was the Lord North Ministry getting things wrong constantly and also the generals not even supporting the plan that they put their names to. So, you know, it's very often that King George III is blamed for losing the American War of Independence. But of the ten or so factors that did lose Britain that war, he was only really marginally involved in one of them. I think that the real genius of the American founding was that the founding fathers did something totally exceptional in history because there are any number of other countries and peoples throughout history who have escaped oppression and set up their own country and founded their own sovereignty. One thinks of the Israelites escaping from the Egyptians, the Spanish fighting the Dutch, the Austrians and the um, Italians, the Turks and the Greeks. You know, in each case these were oppressive forces and the uh, other people escaped from oppression. What America did was to demand its own freedom and independence and sovereignty from a power that was not oppressing it, from a king who was not a tyrant in any way that you can use the, uh, the term. You know, he was not cruel, he was not despotic, but he was somebody who had to go because America was ready for its own independence. And that was proved to have been absolutely the right decision for America, because a century later, you were the most powerful nation in the world. I think that the um, sort of takeaway message is that America's demand for autonomy was more important and more powerful than anything else. And certainly that George III's so-called tyranny has to be seen in that light. He was not a tyrant. The declaration was wrong when it said that he was unfit to be the ruler of free people because he was the ruler of Britain and we were a free people at the time. Article 2 of your constitution invests huge amounts of power in your um, president. And uh, I noticed last April the Harvard Law Review argued very convincingly that in fact the present American president, the, the imperial presidency as it has grown um, to become, 
is in fact much more powerful than George III was as King of England. So unless you believe that uh, the imperial presidency of today is a tyranny, then um, I don't think that you can continue to uh, believe that George III was one. And the king had learnt a lot of the, um, of the lessons, really, of the American War of Independence. So in the French Revolutionary and subsequently Napoleonic Wars, Britain was in a much better state military. In fact, there's nothing, there's nothing better for an army than to lose a war in time for the next one, because people learn from the necessity of defeat far better than from anything else. So by the Napoleonic Wars, you know, we had people who were officers who were able to be chosen on their talents rather than how rich they were or where they came from in society. And we had one thing that George learned was how important it was to stick to the war. We uh, didn't trust the um, French royalists who, like the loyalists in America, never really amounted to as much as was hoped for. And so overall, it was a better war for Britain to fight, and not least, of course, it was against the French. The king was, the, uh, was on the throne for longer than any other king of England. He was on the throne for nearly 60 years, but the last 10 years of which was a regency because he had gone blind and deaf, and he was also senile, and he was mad. So the last decade of his life, from uh, 1810 to 1820, is a very sad and ridden one where he was in uh, Windsor Castle and no one came to visit him. He played the harpsichord to himself and couldn't even hear the music. Writing of Great Britain in the King's obituary in the Times, it said, Under the guidance of George III, she held fast by the laws and religion of her ancestors and escaped the vortex of the French Revolution, on the edge of which she stood. And in December 1768, John Wesley wrote, his whole conduct, both in private and in public, ever since he began his reign, the uniform tenor of his behaviour, the general course both of his words and actions, has been worthy of an Englishman, worthy of a Christian, and worthy of a king. And a special thanks on the production to Monty Montgomery. And a special thanks to Andrew Roberts. The book, The Last King of America, go to Amazon and The Usual Suspects and pick up a copy and my goodness, what a story about what we were really fighting about and for, which was our autonomy. It wasn't about money. It was about us deciding for ourselves who we were and who we would become. In the end, the story of America, here on Our American Stories. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. 
This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.